The following message is brought to you by MacArthur Boulevard Baptist Church. We are many stories made one family by one gospel. If you would like to connect with us, please check out our website at MacArthurBoulevard.org. As a dad of four younger children, uh, getting ready for a long road trip is literally a multi-day process. And it is a process that, frankly, I have gotten down to a science. Packing the bags, preparing the van, tire pressure, oil, gas, making sure everything's ready and in good working condition, making everything actually to, to fit, which is, which is the big challenge, to, to fit inside the van, utilizing every nook and cranny. My geometry teacher promised me that I would use geometry in my life, and she was right. But it seems that no matter how much you prepare for a long road trip, inevitably, it seems like something always goes wrong, right? One year, we're traveling down to Galveston, and uh, we, we broke down after all the preparation. We ended up breaking down in the parking lot of a Walmart some, some, somewhere in, in, in Houston where we spent three hours and me Ubering around getting the parts I needed to replace some battery terminal in the van. Um, not long ago, we were on another trip as a family. We actually arrived at our destination this time after a long, full day of driving and unloading the van. We get there only to realize that somebody had forgotten to actually put mine and Megan's suitcases inside the van. Uh, it, it, it was me. I was a somebody. <laughs> and so it doesn't take long when you're preparing for a long journey to, re to recognize no matter how carefully you prepare, you are in dire need of the grace of God, the, the gracious hand of God. And, and in our text this morning, we find, we find Ezra and all the exiles that are with Ezra as they prepare for a long journey and they too recognize how desperate they are for the gracious hand of God. So if you haven't done so already, if you have your Bibles, open them up and find Ezra chapter 8 this morning. Ezra chapter 8. We're, we were reminded last Sunday, Pastor Bob, uh, that chapter 7 actually marked a new major section uh, within uh, the book of, of Ezra. We're now with a new generation of exiles that are following the original generation of exiles that returned to the land to rebuild uh, the temple. 57 years has now gone by. And, and now King Artaxerxes has commissioned Ezra, the scribe, to lead a second wave of exiles back to the land in order to actually establish the law of God there in Jerusalem. Now it's interesting, these two sections in Ezra actually mirror each other. Uh, chapter 1 of the first section begins with this decree from King Cyrus that the exiles can return to the land. Uh, the first chapter of the second section, which was chapter 7, we saw last Sunday, began with this decree, this time from King Artaxerxes, that the exiles could return to the land. Chapter 2 of the first section, which is literally chapter 2 in the book, then gives us a long list of all of the names of the exiles, those who return to the land. And so guess how the second chapter of the second section, which is chapter 8, begins? It begins with this long list of 
names of those who are returning in this second wave. So chapter 8, verse 1, look at it. These are the family heads and the genealogical records of those who return with me. Okay, Ezra is now in the narrative, so first person, Ezra being the author, with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. All right, and then you have this, this list of names that, that run all the way through the end of verse 14. Now, this group of exiles, they're getting ready to make this long journey uh, from where they are in exile all the way back to uh, Jerusalem. And so it says in verse 15, he says, I gathered them at the river that flows from Ahava, and we camped there for three days. Now, those three days were important because this was a long trip. They had to use these days in order to prepare for what would have been about a 900-mile journey on foot, all right? And so during these three days, they're gathering supplies, uh, making sure they have plenty of food and, and, and water. The dads, right, are feverishly trying to make everything fit, right, in the, the caravan that they're, they're moving in, all of their possessions, going across land. They're also, during these three days, taking counts of all of the people, numbering the people, because they don't want to lose anybody uh, in transit. And it tells us that as they're going through and numbering this caravan, Ezra uncovers a really big problem. Go back to verse 15. He says, I searched among the people and the priests, but found no Levites there. Uh-oh. Levites actually played a really important role in the establishment of the law of, of, of God. You see, King Artaxerxes had said voluntarily, anybody who, any of the exiles who wants to return to the land, you're free to do so. But evidently, none of the Levites stepped up. None of them volunteered to make this dangerous trip. Instead, they were satisfied with their life in exile. When you become overly comfortable with your life in exile, it will rob you of blessings that God has for you. And oftentimes, taking hold of the blessings in life that God has for you will require you to take a step of faith to get out of your comfort zone. But the blessings of God are so much more satisfying than what the safety of Babylon can offer you. Well, guys, this is a problem. Ezra knows that he can't go back to the land and establish the law without any Levites. And so it tells us in the text that Ezra sent some leaders to a place called Ido. Evidently, there were a lot of Levites living in Ido. And, and since none of these Levites originally volunteered to go back to the land... As the good pastor that Ezra was, he voluntold some of them. You're going back to the land. All right? Now, I want you to look at verse 18. It says, Since the gracious 
hand of our God was on us, they brought us, and then it, it tells us the names of those Levites who ultimately agreed to go back to the land with them. Okay. Now, down in verses 26 and 27, the author tells us how much silver and gold King Artaxerxes sent back with this group of exiles. He was funding this, and he sent all of this all of these resources to help refurbish the temple and institute the sacrificial system. It tells us how much. It was about 25 tons of silver and almost four tons of gold that the king sent with the people. Guys, that's a lot of coin, all right? And, and they, have to, they have to transport all of this 900 miles through dangerous and remote territories, and they were doing so without a Brink security truck, okay? Now, we know that during this time, robbers and, robbers and bandits would hide out among the canyons and the ravines in some of these remote locations in order to ambush travelers to rob them of their valuables. Guys, this was a really dangerous trip. The people were incredibly vulnerable. And, and so what does Ezra do? Well, it tells us in verse 21. He says, I proclaimed a fast by the Ahava River so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us, our dependence, and all of our possessions. I did this because I was ashamed to ask the king for infantry and cavalry to protect us from enemies during the journey, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is gracious to all who seek him, but his fierce anger is against all who abandon him. So we fasted and pleaded with our God about this, and he was receptive to our prayers. Now, Guys, these three verses I just read, verses 21 through 23, they're the key verses in chapter 8, all right? They're the verses that's going to unlock the main idea of this text for us. So we're going to circle back to those three verses, spend some more time there in just a moment. But let me just kind of finish out and tell you what happens in this story. Ezra says, listen, I was, I was too ashamed to ask the king for help because I've been going on and on and on about this God who is faithful to help and provide and protect. <laughs> and so I couldn't ask the king, and so he says... Uh, they, they fasted and they sought God's face. They prayed for a safe journey. The text goes on to tell us that Ezra took all of the gold and silver and he divided it up amongst 12 leaders of the Levites, each of them commissioned with guarding and protecting the segment of money that was given to them all the way from where they were to the house of God in Jerusalem. And then it tells us this, the outcome down in verse 31. It says, we were strengthened by our God. Now, that little phrase literally reads, the hand of God was on us. And he kept us from the grasp of the enemy and from ambush along the way. So we arrived at Jerusalem and rested there for three days. And after the three days, they go to the temple, they take inventory of all the gold and silver, and they discover that not a single ounce of the silver or gold 
<laughs> had been lost along the way. All of it was accounted for. So the chapter concludes with the people offering sacrifices and burnt offerings of praise and worship to God. The exact same thing that the original exiles did when they returned to the land. They worshipped, they praised, they offered to God, recognizing that God is faithful. Now there's a key phrase in this passage that's repeated three different times. Anybody pick up on it as we were going through the chapter together? I read it each time. The gracious hand of our God was on us. I want you to see this with your eyes. Look at verse 18. First occurrence. Since the gracious hand of our God was on us. Drop down verse 22. Middle of 22. The hand of our God is gracious to all who seek him. Then down middle of verse 31 literally reads, the hand of our God was on us. Now, how many of you would say, I would like the gracious hand of God on my life? Anybody here this morning? Anybody here would say, you know what? I think I would like the gracious hand of God to be on my family and to be on my children and to be on my marriage and to be on my church. Would anybody sign up for that? Guys, what does it mean for the gracious hand of God to be on us, his hand of favor, his hand of blessing? Well, the text tells us, at least part of it, according to this text, God's gracious hand, his hand of blessing, brings provision. The first occurrence of the phrase in verse 18 comes within a context of God providing the Levites that Ezra and the people needed. The, the, the gracious hand of God was on us in that he provided for us. So evidently being under God's gracious hand means never being in want. It means that we don't have to have a mindset of scarcity, but that we can have a mindset of sonship, knowing that our Father loves us and He has unlimited resources and He will be faithful to provide everything that we need because His gracious hand is on us. His gracious hand brings provision. But also, according to the text, his gracious hand brings protection. This is the third occurrence of the phrase. Verse 31 comes in the context of God protecting his people from their enemies and from ambush along their long journey. And so evidently, living under God's gracious hand means living in a, in a position of security. It doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to you in life. It does mean that as we journey through this process of exile toward the land that God has for us, that our enemies will never ultimately be victorious over us. Why? Because God's gracious hand is on us. As we sing regularly here, he will 
hold us fast. There's protection under God's gracious hand. Finally, there is peace, not just provision, not just protection, but peace under his hand. This is the middle occurrence of the phrase. Go back to verse 22. Let me read it again. It says, the hand of our God is gracious to all who seek him, but then here's the flip side of the coin, but his fierce anger is against all who abandon him. According to this verse, God's only got two hands. You're either under his hand of of grace and favor and blessing, or you're under his hand of anger and discipline and resistance. In other words, God is never hands off. So this is what it means to be under God's gracious hand. It means to enjoy peace. I don't have to worry about God's anger or condemnation. I don't have to live my life with shame and guilt and fear. I can enjoy peace in my soul because of his gracious hand being on my life. But guys, understand there is no middle ground. There is no neutral position where maybe I'm not under his hand of grace, but neither am I under his hand of anger. There are only two hands of God, his hand of grace and his hand of resistance. And and so the obvious question then becomes, well, how do you live under his hand of grace? How can I have the gracious hand of God on my life? And verse 22 actually answers that question for us. In fact, it's the main idea of the text. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I would encourage you to write this down. God's gracious hand is on those who seek him. That's what verse 22 says. His gracious hand is on those who seek him. And so I, I, I ask you again, who, who wants the gracious hand of God on their lives, on their home, their family, their children? If you want God's gracious hand on your life, then seek him. Because God's gracious hand is on those who seek him. Which leads us to the next question. <laughs> what does it mean to seek God? Like, What does that mean? It preaches good. But it's a vague concept, right? My kids love playing hide-and-go-seek, right? Where everybody hides and someone tries to, to, to find where, where they are hi- hiding. Is, is that the idea of, of, of seeking God? Like maybe I'll, I'll look and see if God is hiding in Islam. Or maybe I, if I don't find him there, maybe I'll look and see if he's hiding in Hinduism. And if I can't find him there, I'll look and see if I can find God hiding out in New Age spirituality. And if I can't seem to find God there, then I'll look for him in this or that philosophy. Is that what it means to, to seek God? <laughs> to find where he's hiding? I was, uh, our community group was at the park a few months ago doing a, kind of an outreach uh, event. And I ended up interacting with this young lady, and she was fascinated with the fact that I was a pastor. And she said, that's so interesting, because I have been trying to find God. And she explained, 
uh, interested in our church because she's been going from this place of worship and this church to that. And I, I don't mean like Christian churches, but like different religions and philosophies because she's, she, I'm just, I'm trying to find God. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. <laughs> and some of you, maybe you said, you know what, I got to get to church because I need to find God in my life. Well, if that's, if that's actually why you're listening to this message, I want to share with you the same thing I shared with the lady at the, at the, at the park. And it's that God is not playing hide and seek with us. I'm going to hide in one of these religions and see if they can find me. Guys, God's not hiding. God has revealed himself. He has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The way that you find God is by trusting and following Jesus. You see, the idea isn't that humanity is out here, eyes wide open. Let's see if we can find God tucked away in some, some religion or philosophy or ideal. No, the Bible says that humanity is out here blinded, like we can't see anything, right? We would never find God on our own, but what God has done for us in Christ is he's opened our eyes to see him. He's revealed in Christ. Now, I want to flesh this idea out a little bit more because this is a message not just for those who are lost and want to find God. This is also, listen, a message for Christians. There are a few aspects of what it means to seek God that we see in this text because it's clear that the gracious hand of God is on those who seek him. So how do we, how do we as God's people, how do we seek the Lord? What? Let's go back to those three key verses, verses 21 through 23. So we see in those three verses a few aspects of, of what it means to seek God. And so, so, so the first aspect is this. Number one, we seek God by pursuing him through worship. We seek God by pursuing him through worship. I want you to look at verse 21 again. It says, I proclaimed a fast by the Ahava River, so that we might humble ourselves before God and ask him for a safe journey. So, so the first aspect of what it meant for the people to seek God was simply to pursue him through worship. And for Ezra and the exiles with him, that worship in this instance took the form of a corporate fast and a season of prayer that they entered into. Listen, guys, they put everything else on hold. Like they were getting ready to travel 900 miles with everything that they owned. They were busy. There was a lot to be done. They, not only were they busy, they were busy doing the Lord's work. Like this is good, godly busyness. He, he, he wants them back in the land, so they're preparing to get back into the land. But according to verse 21, they did not allow their busyness to deter them from the priority of worship. They recognize that before we serve God, we've got to seek God. Before we stand and move across the country, we're going to sit and be in his presence. 
We're going to humble ourselves before him, acknowledging our dependency upon him. That's what it looked like for the people to seek God. Church, listen, God's gracious hand is on the people and the families and the churches who seek him, not on those who know most about him, not on those who do the most for him. His hand of grace is on those who seek him, and seeking God begins with pursuing him through worship. This is such a timely message for our church right now because we're about to enter into a new ministry year. We're going to be talking more about disciple making and opportunities I believe God has for our church to, to make disciples who, who make disciples. I'm excited about it because this is the mission that God has given us. But listen to me, church. There's a warning in the text here. If in the midst of all of our good ministry, if in the midst of all of our good service and disciple making for God, if we neglect the most foundational ministry that we've received, which is worship, if we neglect as a church sitting in his presence and loving him and receiving his love for us, if we like the church in Ephesus with all of our good orthodoxy and good works if we somewhere along the line abandon our first love if we fail to seek him before we try to serve him we will not bear fruit and not only will we not bear fruit we will dry up as a church and we will dry up as people and what it, what did Jesus say about fruitfulness? He said, abide in my love and you will bear fruit. Guys, the gracious hand of God is on those who seek him and we seek him first of all by pursuing him through worship. There's a second aspect of seeking God we see here in the text. Number two, we seek God by relying upon him for help. Relying upon him for help. Ezra and the people, they needed help, right? They needed protection for this journey that they were going on. So Ezra, look back at verse 22. He calls this fast. He says, I did this because I was ashamed to ask the king for an infantry and cavalry to protect us from, the enemy, or from enemies during the journey. Since we had told him, the hand of our God is gracious on those who seek him. But his fierce anger is against those who abandon him. In, in other words, one aspect of seeking God was relying upon God for help. Turning to God. Looking to God in their time of need. In this way, they sought him. And so I want to ask you. When you're in trouble, when you, when you feel vulnerable and afraid or worried in a time of need, what do you do first? Where do you go first? To whom do you look first? 
Guys, I can tell you what I believe about God, but you're going to see what I believe about God based upon how I respond in crisis. I have a sister in this church. I'm not going to tell you her name because it would embarrass her. <laughs> she's, uh, she's, uh, we're seeking the Lord together um, for a few, three or four very specific requests, just needs that she has in her life. And, and, and just about every Sunday, almost every single Sunday, this sister of mine seeks me out to pray with me. And I've got a lot of people that pray with me on a Sunday morning, so if you see somebody praying with me, don't think, oh, that's her, that's her. But I... As we've been praying the same three to four prayer requests for almost two years now. <laughs> now, here's the thing. I've never sat down with this sister and asked her, hey, give me your treaties on the nature of God. I've, I've never read anything she's written on her theology of the nature of God. But I, I know what she believes about God. Because I, I, I see where she, where she turns in a time of need. She turns to the Lord. And here's the thing. I don't know how God will ultimately respond to these three or four requests that we have been praying for about two years now. I do know this. The gracious hand of God will be on my sister because she has sought him. She is relying upon him in her time of need. The staff and I made a quick list of places where we are likely to turn first when we need help with something. Not exhaustive, but maybe some of these will resonate. Before we turn to God, we might turn to Google. Parents, friends, the government, politicians, therapy, education. We might turn to ourselves, philosophies, religion, charity, books written by experts, social media, podcasts, financial advisors, Oprah, substances, psychics, horoscopes, and, and the list could go on and on. Now, is it wrong to turn to some, some of these things for help? No. In, in fact, some of these things may be means that God will actually work through to, to, to help you. But, but seeking God means that as a, listen, as a matter of priority, you rely first and foremost on God for help. Ezra said, I was too ashamed to ask the king for a protective escort because I had been talking to the king about how great my God is. He wanted to give God an opportunity to show the king and the world how reliable he is. Do you ever give God the opportunity to show the world 
how reliable he is. The gracious hand of God is on those who seek him, and we seek God by relying upon him for help. Now, now quickly, I want to show you one, one final aspect of what it means to seek God here from the text. Number three is this. We seek God by trusting his guidance. Trusting his guidance. This final point is really similar to the second point, but it's distinct enough. I wanted to treat it independently here. Um, it's so interesting. Ezra proclaims a fast... And he calls the people into this season of prayer, and it's within this fast and season of prayer that he comes to the conclusion that he shouldn't ask the king for a protective escort to help them on their journey. Uh, instead, he reveals to Ezra, now I'm going I'm to protect you directly. I want you to ask the king. Now, that was God's guidance to Ezra in that specific situation. Don't ask the king. What's interesting is that in a very similar situation, God is going to give Nehemiah different guidance. This is Nehemiah chapter 2, and it tells us that after Nehemiah sought the Lord, he did the very thing that Ezra chose not to do. He went to the king, he asked for help, in fact it tells us God's gracious hand was on him, and so... The king sent Nehemiah with a military escort, protected him to the land. And in the author, Ezra, who's the author, remember, of Ezra and Nehemiah, the whole book, he doesn't indicate in Nehemiah 2 that Nehemiah was doing anything wrong by asking the king for help. Why is that? Well, because Nehemiah, just like Ezra, had sought the Lord in his time of need. The guidance that God gave to Ezra in his situation was not to go to the king and ask for help, but that he was going to help Ezra apart from the king and his military. The guidance that God gave to Nehemiah as he sought the Lord was the way in which I'm going to help you is through the king's military. So go to the king, I'm going to turn his heart to help you. So what, what's the commonality but between the two, what, what, what does it mean to seek God? It means asking God for guidance, seeking him, going to him for guidance in your time of need, and then trusting, following, obeying the guidance, the specific guidance that he provides you. Guys, listen, the Holy Spirit will leverage the word of God that you have hidden in your heart to guide you through specific situations in your life. If, if you will first hide the word of God in your heart. And second, if you will ask God for guidance in specific situations. Alright? And it doesn't mean that God will always give you the precise direction that you're looking for. But as you pursue God in prayer and hide God's word in your heart, he will guide you. And as you're discerning in that pursuit of God, as you're discerning his guidance, you're also inviting trusted brothers and sisters into your life to help you test what you believe the Spirit is, is saying. And evidently, this is an aspect of what it means to seek God. It means I'm going to God. I'm seeking God and trusting him for guidance. 
in my life. Guys, as Christians, it is not possible for us to experience the condemnation of God. We know that, right? The scripture's clear. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. However, even as Christians, it is possible to live and to operate according to the flesh. Uh, according to the ways of this world, in a posture of self-reliance. And, and guys, when you operate in that manner, you forfeit the blessings of God that would have otherwise been your right in Christ. When, when, you, when you live this way, not prioritizing worship, not relying upon God, not trusting the guidance of God, but going your own way in your own strength, what you're doing is you're moving out from under his gracious hand, and then you will experience God's hand of resistance in your life. It doesn't mean that you won't be saved, but that salvation may come as through fire in this life. But guys, there is provision, there is protection, there is peace under God's gracious hand. Because the text is abundantly clear that God's gracious hand is on those who seek him. The churches that seek him, the families that seek him, the individuals that seek him. And so, pursue him in worship. Rely upon him for help and trust his guidance. And then you can live under the gracious hand of God.